0: From Severn Films comes Danza Macabra, Volume 1, The Italian Gothic Collection. This four-disc box set includes The Monster of the Opera, The Seventh Grave, Scream of the Demon Lover, and Lady Frankenstein. All restored from the original negatives with over 12 hours of special features. Four Italian Gothic classics uncut, uncensored, and very unsettling. Danza Macabra, Volume 1, now available at severnfilms.com.
1: Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is also brought to you by the upcoming movie, Unseen. Two women form an unlikely connection when Sam, a gas station clerk, receives a misdialed call from Emily, who is running from her murderous ex-boyfriend in the woods. Having lost her glasses in her escape, Emily must rely on Sam's eyes using the video call in order to survive. Unseen is the latest thriller from Blumhouse Productions, available to buy or rent on digital now. This film is not rated. Welcome to colors of the dark i'm your co-host rebecca mckendry and with me is mr movies himself because he's wearing a t-shirt that says that sup kane
0: you, you ready
1: some, you getting you getting some snort on oh. doing a couple eight balls over there
0: i said god damn let's,
1: let's do it lucky
0: i'm not a bear should we talk about what we've been doing lately
1: yeah so we um we actually have two movies um that we've seen, but yes um our recently actually well, I, three i think three well i have like five but no no three that we have that in we common watched together okay yeah. that's what i was getting at um so yeah we we decided to go check out cocaine bear cocaine bear um, cocaine bear um so this one you know this movie it's got some hiccups it's got some places where i was like that editing's a little clunky that felt hey, becca weird. has cocaine but bear
2: what are you that's looking it. for no that is
1: at the end of the day no matter kind of the parts that i saw as kind of like you know you know what? It's got a fucking cocaine bear ripping out people's intestines. And with that, Elric and I laughed, stuffed popcorns in our faces. And at the end, we had a... That edit was weird. Yeah, but it had a cocaine bear. Yeah, and it, that's where it is.
0: It's like where snakes on a plane... I know everyone was trying worrying it would be like snakes on a plane, Where snakes on a plane is like an action movie, be action movie, this is a broad comedy. And and yes. you don't want it to be a broad comedy. You want going into this movie, you want to go to Cocaine and You don't know what you want it to be. You want it to be grisly, but jacked up with a big budget, mm-hmm. you know, and it's not that movie at all. It's, you get maybe three or four scenes that are like that and they are the best parts of the movie. There's a paramedic scene that I think is one of the most fun things of the year. That, yeah. that whole sequence is great, but it is not the movie I wanted it to be based on the advertising, the poster, the broad comedy is very broad to me like very broad and that, that's not my bag so I was I was surprised how little me and you didn't laugh like we there was long stretches where we we're just kind of silently watching the, and I was like that's weird given that it's a broad comedy
1: plus you and I laugh at like scream this weekend we're gonna yes. crack up the yeah. whole time we're, we laugh oh. at the darker
0: stuff in this but but there was just a lot it was also too many characters too much of an Altman kind of a uh, structure which mm-hmm. for a comedy you know seems a little odd it, it just it doesn't all work it's you know there's yeah. it's a fun element but it definitely has some th- maybe it was rushed you know it may have been one of those productions that kind of moved fast because the concept's so high
1: yeah this one you know and I was thinking back of snakes on a plane and snakes on a plane kind of played it all so seriously like somebody at some point said this is a really stupid concept yeah but if we play the whole thing so goddamn seriously and make it like we are making the best snakes on a plane movie ever then the humor works. And it does. This one... It was very much that they said it's cocaine bear, it's over the top, it's ridiculous and silly. So, we, the actors, can be ridiculous and silly. It parts of it feel very kind of SNL where they're mugging for the camera and it's caricatures and the jokes go on and on. And there's a lot of jokes, like there are jokes written into the script. Whereas on Snakes on a Plane, it's very much like, you know, he screams, I'm going to get these snakes off the motherfucking plane or the whatever. The jokes, it is. the
0: concept only really. Yeah, yeah.
1: And it's all in the serious delivery and how. Earnest, the actors are receiving it. This is not like that. Um, yeah, watch Grizzly. That- if you
0: want the straight version, you watch Girdler's Grizzly, which is a blast. I'm going to check out another bear one that I had not seen for our next deep cuts. I, I there, I, there's another deep cut bear rampage one where I was like, oh, I got to check that one out. Um, so I'm going to do that this week, but uh, you know, it, the cool fun. thing is it did well, it yeah. did very well financially. So I think that's cool for the high concept, like crazy movies, which I always want more of, because it's just a good time, you know, good reason to go out to the movies with a crowd, you know, mm-hmm. that's the difference. You, you don't need to watch this one alone at home. Uh, this is definitely a party film.
1: Yes. Um, so let's now go to like a fucking polar opposite movie. Um, let me say that a couple of weeks ago I got a subscription to Screen box. And so a couple of my films tonight come from Screenbox Box because I have been working my way through. And the thing that has impressed me the most is that they have shit on there I have not seen. Um, titles that I've never even heard of, that mm. I'm like, what are you? And they have this cool like the wish list option where you can build like your own little like watch list like you do on Netflix. And I probably have 30 things on there that I have mm. not seen yet. Um, But polar opposite of cocaine bear, another one that just released that is making a lot of waves in horror circles outwaters um, is currently on screen box. I loved this and I don't know why. I mean, killer worms, that's like a given, but this it's, it's, a I didn't even know it's, what
0: they were. I, they because yeah. it's cut. Well, it's, it, it's, you know, cosmic horror is I've always been really interested mm-hmm. in. It. And yours is like, you know, like dark comedy co- cosmic yeah. horror, right? Like yours is that neat, the more in the Lovecraft thing. But what, what the truest idea of like a cosmic horror is that thing where you can't really fully get it. Like you're like, yeah. the fuck am I even watching? Where did it come from? Why is it here? And this movie it definitely leans hard into that in that last act, which I wasn't. Yes. I didn't know that that's where the movie was going. I thought it was just a found footage, like camping gone crazy film.
1: Mm -hmm. no this one i was not expecting kind of where it went it's a group of um young adults who head out to joshua tree to do modeling shots i think they're gonna make a music music video video, that's it like there's there's a modeling thing but they're making a music video as well and you have like a full song played out with a girl singing it on acoustic and it's all pretty so there it's like five kids head out to joshua tree to make a music video And something happens the first night that's creepy where their tent gets attacked and they're hearing all these really weird sounds like screaming off in the distance and things like that. And then it really does become kind of a stream of conscious peace. Um, And the whole thing's found footage with one guy as his friends kind of disappear and he's just wandering around this Joshua Tree desert landscape um, as various things attack him um sometimes they are you know very much like that's a monster and then other times it's just wild and weird with things happening um like a
0: repetitive assault thing that happens for quite a good sequence look this is a movie that i truly again like a lot of the ones we've been talking about second half of the show we'll be talking a lot more about this kind of stuff but i do think uh 30 minutes less and this is a stone cold classic stone cold classic like this everyone would be watching this forever but at two full hours that's a lot to like it's not something you can really rewatch easily at that length for the kind of thing it is so but it's really effective like i we should you know try to get this filmmaker on at some point i think his name's robbie Banwith, because uh, it's it's very it does something that other found footage films don't usually do which is it goes kind of abstract and, it doesn't and, answer no. questions
1: like yeah. you, i would love to say i know what those killer worms are or what the Whatever fuck they happened. Were, yeah. there was intestines in a scene like there's a lot happening at one point they start seeing the past again and you That's realize right.
0: Some loops. yeah there's some there's loop loops. play
1: and yeah it's it it gets weird and it never tries to answer the questions of what's going on and i kind of love that because it is just this very much you're existing in the space and much like a skinnery you don't know what you're looking for but you're having to work for it which we'll talk more about in the show
0: yeah i just liked that that one was it's like got a little bit of the skimmering thing but it's mm-hmm. also found footage it's definitely yeah. found footage but then as we talked about later in the show the found footage start skewing into saying you haven't quite seen before and and that's you know hard to do with found footage at this point and so hats off to that, that one well we should dive rightly into the one we almost talked because i do think it has similarities not necessarily but just in terms of abstractions to one we were going to talk about last week which is Ennis men
1: mm-hmm. oh yeah i forgot about that one we can talk about and uh, wait can yeah. we talk about Ennis Men. yeah now? this is the week yeah OK, yeah, that's
0: where you're you told really to spin. talk in March. That's why we were going to talk about it last week and we were told we couldn't. I mean, look, it's been out for like a year in the UK. Yeah, so. it's
1: it's been it's run film festivals as well. Ennis man is another one um, that we're going to it's this thing that we're going to talk about a lot later in the show with Grady Hendricks that we're calling liminal horror. And I mean, that's not a term that we're creating. It's definitely um, something that is out there, but it's kind of these films that exist in this space where you don't necessarily get a clear depiction of what's going on they're very transitional they tend to feel kind of cerebral um ennisman definitely qualifies as that it is a woman in a lighthouse on an island in where is she scotland i don't know
0: if she's I, in a lighthouse on there i think it's a little house
1: it's like it's a little house, a little
0: house on a little island well we no so we okay. last we mentioned Welsh.
1: But it. it's actually isn't.
0: Cornish. A lot of people okay, wrote to me. You. People wrote to me, because I said as well saying it's Cornish, uh which means Stone Island and his men. And Stone Island, so she's on an island that just has the stone configuration like a statue, uh, that has obviously a folk horror element surrounding yeah. it. She and- is taking readings repetitively in 1973. And, and not really around people.
1: Yeah, she's there by herself. And you get the idea that like her daughter's there with her and this guy shows up occasionally. Um, but basically it's repetitive because she's going through the same routine every day where she measures the soil temperature of these particular flowers. And then she goes and she drops a rock and she like waits to hear the sound. And then she goes back and writes down all of these configurations and then always writes no change and then things start changing and then she starts kind of having these moments where you don't know if what is happening is really happening or if she's seeing the past or if she's in a dream or a nightmare escape, or a loop or if she even fucking exists and then right well weird.
0: well you think it's positioned in the first 10 minutes like oh she must be there with somebody else like a daughter yeah. and another guy but as story or lack of story, or repetition of story unfolds, you start to realize, or is that her young, and is this person, is this how it all, you know, it's very loopish in that way, but it's also it's, this one, you know, I think, I think I maybe took to it more than you did, but I also think since it ended, and I've had a couple of weeks, I like it more away from it Mm-hmm. And while, I was first watching it, and and not simply maybe because when I when you watch a movie like this, you go, "Oh, I want it to be this horror movie that does a certain thing." It doesn't do the thing. What it does is it has you can feel the Nicholas Rogue influence on this. Oh yeah, and and I find it's just all mood, all atmosphere. Maybe not enough payoff, which is probably the problem. But at least this one's like nice and tight. It's like ninety minutes, sixteen millimeter. Everything's almost fetishistically time period accurate. The costuming yeah. and the little details, and and I just it's one of those ones. I think a lot of these movies burrow in your brain more after it's over than while you're mm-hmm. watching it maybe not outwaters outwaters was actually while i was watching it it's like a great assault kind of actiony but all the others seem to be there's this quiet quality that yeah um is you know almost underwhelming while you're watching it but then it kind of grows a little bit
1: i was kind of underwhelmed by ns men i really um i wanted the trailer Because the trailer is is like a traditional horror trailer. And I was like, holy shit, they made a period folk horror. This is going to be amazing. And then I'm watching it and I'm like, nothing's happening. I mean, they
0: did. They did make a period horror, but you're right. It doesn't have that big... It's
1: not... But it's not something... a horror. There's it's something scary, it's liminal, it's cerebral, there's definitely something brewing underneath and it's making you piece it together, but there is not a single scary moment in that entire film. Um
0: that might be true. Well, yeah, there's dread. Again, it's one of there's these films where there's there moments of dread. dread in this in yeah. this and again, it it it's it depends what you're looking for. If you go into it with that, maybe that will help. Like knowing yeah. it's a little bit more like an experimental. It is. A car piece, you
1: know? You know, nothing's going to jump out at you. I The trailer makes it look like Wicker Man, like a yeah. 1973 Wicker Man. And I was like, this is going to be great. And don't expect that. Expect yeah. kind of. Much like Skinner Marink, it is a mood piece that exists and you're kind of along for the ride. And it is, it's going to get trippy and you're going to try to figure it out. And yeah, but it's unlike and Marink,
0: is truly experimental because there's mm-hmm. no character in this, it is still there's still emotion because there's a character that you're following and, and feeling, you know, what they're kind of doing. It's still abstract, but th- it's different in that sense, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I like this film, I just it's one that. I I probably need to actually see it one more time. Like, I feel like unlike skin rank that I know what that feeling was. I wouldn't need to just rush back to that. This one, it was kind of left me and it was almost so mysterious in the feeling that I almost kind of want to do it one more time. We'll see. Yeah. But um. But I do recommend it. And this is by. I also heard that uh, Mark Jenkins, the director, has filmed before. This called Bait. I heard was really good. Um. And quite different than this one. So now I have um, to
1: Google Bait. I assume yeah, that's not the shark movie. No. That's... This
0: is like a black and white. Oh,
1: 2019. Movie. Yeah. Ooh. Same
0: actress. And I heard is it was funnier man? and stuff. Yeah. I heard it was funnier and weirder. You know. So I don't know. I'm just yeah. Curious. Corn.
1: It's a Cornish fishing village. That okay. I'm yeah. Intrigued. I'm curious. That sounds yeah. kind of
0: fun. Probably one for our deep cuts. We'll, yeah. we'll get there. So that's Annie's men.
1: Annie's men. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go to um We Have a Ghost. Because did yeah, you watch that? I watched that, that one? too. Yeah. Okay, I excellent. Did. Um, So we have a ghost. This is the new Christopher Landon movie on Netflix right now, based on a short story that I had not read. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is definitely, um, don't go in thinking that this is like a freaky or happy death day level of horror. This is very much like a family friendly horror film. Uh, Or I'll call it a ghost I I
0: don't think it can ever be called horror because it's not, there's not even a beat. They purposely make the first time you see them. It's a joke.
1: He's hilarious. Like they're
0: making fun of the ghost the very first time the guy sees him. So it really never, but it's, you know, it's a ghost. So you can call it within the genre.
1: Yeah. This is definitely something that I will watch with my kids later because it is a fun teen story it's um funny and it's not supposed to be scary in any capacity um but yeah the basic setup is that a family moves into a house and um the teen kid who's really kind of you know teen angsty he wants to be a musician um he's sitting up in their attic one day playing guitar and all of a sudden this ghost emerges from the wall who's played by um oh gosh his name david is david yeah and Strangely. emerges from the wall with a beautiful comb over and starts like waving his arms around and moaning. And the kid is like, Holy fuck. We have a ghost dude. Settle. You're not, you're, you're, being Cray, and um he learns that the ghost can't talk that he has no memory of his life, but for some reason, um you know, this kid sits down and talks to him, and then um it's all kind of about how the family reacts to having this ghost in the house well and, and especially
0: social media. this yeah. becomes a, a social media movie, so it's very much like one of the more modern versions of of Mm -hmm. of I guess of an Amblin film or something like from the 80s like it's it's like what happens if they posted that and that becomes a sensation what happens to the family and and it's cute and fun and like again I'm Way, Team Christopher Landon and I think he's like one of the major voices coming up, and I think he's going to keep making great movies. I this one's aimed less at me, but I thought it had a great heart and was nicely made. It's yeah. I don't feel like I was the target for this one no. because it's so young. And I will say it still suffers a little bit from the Netflix problem. At two hours, this is not a two-hour story. This is nope. this is a this is a film that really could have been a ninety-five minutes. And again, we we talk about this a lot here, but I think it's because. I think it's actually an issue with movies, not just this movie. It's an issue with movies that people need to become uh, vocal about because uh, it's, I think it becomes a better movie, like a more palpable, you will take it with you more. You'll rewatch it more Mm -hmm. at that length. And I'm not sure what, I know Netflix is kind of, to me, the main offender, (laughs) like for streaming for just always every movie is just a little too long. I don't know what that's about. Uh, but this is it is a sweet story and the ending actually got me. It was one of those endings where you, when you get there, even if you've been kind of out of the movie for some of the movie, it just kind of gives you one good little heart punch um at the end. So pretty emotional.
1: Yeah. Um so that was We Have a Ghost which is currently on Netflix. Okay, do you watch anything else new?
0: Yeah, I watched two other new ones. I'll talk about one that didn't really work for me. Um but some people will dig it. I am I here's a trope that I guess I didn't realize I was going to be over but my god I if I see one more movie exploitation, I don't know what has happened but in the last
1: exploitation, I, I have seen
0: five straight movies in the last like year and a half where a nanny moves into a house because the mother is either too busy or can't relate to her child and then the nanny is some sort of bad character who was going to do something there was that great south american one from a couple years ago there was nocebo which was just like a Mm -hmm. month ago and the nanny which won sundance last year which i just watched it's on amazon now and beautifully shot but again same problem with all of them um and this one's called spoonful sugar and it was the new film on Mm -hmm. shutter uh, mercedes bryce morgan directed and um I just don't understand why they're all coming. <laughs> like, they're, I mean, there's more. And then I saw a film from the 70s. Literally the day after I watched this, I watched the 70s film. That was the same storyline. I was like, what is going on with this concept of this being like such a, I mean, it's, you know, I get it. So a stranger comes into the house and bad things happen. But the fact that they're often about mothers not being able to relate to the kid and then trying to replace it with somebody who's going to do something probably supernatural or mysterious. Uh, in this case, Morgan Saylor is this young, she's dressed like a high school girl. She comes into the family. The kid is autistic and uh, the mother is kind of scared of the kid, like Mm -hmm. scared because she just can't relate to him and she doesn't want to and brings him in. Uh, It's funny. This film does a lot of things. I always want indie films to do. I'm like, man, I wish there was more sex in films, more everything. And this film actually has a lot of that stuff. It just. None of it made kind of stuck for me. None of it made sense. I Had some beautiful imagery throughout. Uh, it's this young uh, nanny comes in, and then you just realize she's kind of there's something off about her. You're not sure if she's psychotic or what, but she lives with this older man, and it seems like there's some sort of role playing going on, and she's lusting after this woman's husband that she, of the kid she's looking after, and it just. It kind of jumps from big beat to big beat. It feels like an extreme lifetime, like a like it took a lifetime. It might have even come from that. For all I know, it's very very possible that this was actually made from that world. Uh, kind of like that Lucky McKee one we talked about a couple years back. Mm-hmm. Um, so it could have been that same kind of thing. But uh, but it pushes everything just a little bit further. It it's not without its merits. I just for for me, I think this is a this is a trope now or a story trope that I have just I don't need to see for a while. And I'm shocked how many in a row I've actually, just randomly seen
1: so um, this is this is mine. is this going to piss me off on its autism portrayal?
0: I don't know I, I like it's already a couple of days I'm trying to see what well he he I think they portray him like he has autism. I'm not sure if that's what they ever say he has because they literally the kids like always oh, isolated can't be around people, but actually even more connected to you. He's got severe allergies. And that's part of it. So he's always wearing like a space suit and he goes, and they're not allowed to take him to the park and don't do anything with him. I honestly am not like having watched it. I don't know if they ever talk about the specifics. And I think that's part of the problem because it seems like too many things being lumped together if you mm-hmm. know what I mean and it just felt kind of random um to me and so yeah maybe maybe you should watch it and see where you you'll probably have a better you know angle on all those things so uh I just I, I don't know long, I, just,
1: I can't handle the autistic kid sees ghosts anymore that's the one that I'm no ghost in like, this one oh but yeah a we'll, little uh,
0: bit of uh, it does check. have yeah it does go into some look this you know some people are gonna like all movies it's not it's not the movie maker's fault that I've seen this many <laughs> movies in a row so uh, that are all kind of dealing with the same thing. But I will say The Nanny of those, I didn't like Nacebo at all, even though I love Eva Green. Uh, but I do think The Nanny is worth watching. But again, as a horror film, they none of them really work for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, na- the nanny's just really beautifully shot and well kind of made movie. But yeah. um, anyway, so that's that's the new Shutter one.
1: I have two that I'll move through quickly. And then I have my graphic novel pick of the week. I have one, so, yeah, I have one more so I will say um, this one, or actually I've got three I'll move through quickly. Actually, you know what? I'm going to save this one for deep cuts. I watched Black Candles, which is the skankiest. That's a deep cut. You're not allowed that's to bring that cut. here. Oh, Get it out was here with your... fun. That's no, that's I a was... deep cut. Oh, we bring fine. That'll be over on deep cuts. If you, you want, want to listen to the weird stuff, you go over to Satanic deep orgies. orgies. And I mean a lot of fucking satanic orgies. I do. Like this is that's... basically porn. Black Candles, you head to our deep cut show Exactly there. What, that's what I want. Okay. okay. So I um, was in a conversation um, at lunch with somebody a couple of days ago. And they, they said, you know, it's like life from 2017, that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal. And I suddenly went, wait, what? And they were like, you saw it, life. And I was like, I, I don't have any memory of it. And then I went back and I look at my letterbox and I gave it three and a half stars. And I thought I would start like, with you. We, we very possibly did. And I'm like, why do I have no memory of this movie? And I was suddenly like, Was I going through some shit at the time? Like, was there something in it that I don't remember? I literally had no memory of this film. So I decided to rewatch it because it was almost pissing me off that I, it wasn't even just like, I think I've seen it. I don't really remember what happens. Like I had no goddamn memory of this film. Um, And it's only been five years and I gave it three and a half stars. So I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to watch it again. Um, So this one, I love this movie. (laughs) It was great. I give it three and a half stars again. Um, You can watch it again
0: in five years because you'll forget again. I know,
1: I'll forget completely. And I will say, I've had those movies before where I know I've seen it. I mean, it's like what I call the video... Box case syndrome yeah, yeah. from the 80s, where like I rented headless eyes probably four times because of that crazy cover. And every single time I was like, Oh, I've seen this before. Nope, didn't get any better. This is a good movie. I will say what. Um, so the setup of this is a group of scientists who are getting soil samples from Mars. They're experimenting with it on the spaceship. It's the very first time that they've had soil samples from Mars. They suddenly realize that there is a small life form, like a single Cell life form. They start messing with it. It starts growing exponentially. And then, of course, it's going to start attacking people because that's what single celled organisms do. And then it goes like crazy. Um, The film is a blast for the first act because the first act has Ryan Reynolds in it and he is amazing and electric and fun. He dies, and a lot of the other really charismatic Aww. characters- well, these Ryan sorry.
0: Reynolds fans are just out of the movie now.
1: I know, I know. No, I'm saying he's the very, it's it's the very first, it literally is like, you know, first 10 minutes of the movie. Um, and then, but after his character, and I will say a couple of other characters, I won't go past that point, because that's literally like the first 10 minutes is, is him. And then some of the other characters start perishing. The only one that you are left with is Jake Gyllenhaal. Who, of course, everybody loves. He is very, very like watching cement in this movie. And I think that's why I forgot it. Because the last third of the movie is basically just Jake Gyllenhaal. And his character in this movie, he is supposed to be very kind of straight-laced and take non-nonsense, doesn't have fun, um, not the wild man who's going to take any risks. And he plays that the entire way through. He does not really have like a huge character arc or anything. He is very much like watching an accountant who happens to be an astronaut. Not that accountants can be wild party animals. They totally can. Um, But it is that level of kind of, you know, rigidity, that he just carries the entire way through. And it, um, yeah, it just doesn't work for me.
0: I do remember the start being the best. I mean, I remember it being a technically really well-made It is science fiction, big budget, felt bigger than it, you know,
1: was. Alien and... looks awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that one, I at least wanted to mention it. The other one that I will give a mention to is the brand new Children of the Corn that came out um now i I really was this
0: in theaters right now or or was it the one from two years ago
1: no this one it i think it's from two years ago but it just released i think it just released um to blu-ray um so yeah and i've only
0: seen one children of the corn movie in my whole life and that was the first one that's it so
1: i've seen a lot of the sequels and i think that that's why i i'm kind of um I'm going to give some applause to this one because it really tried to do something different. There's, you know, a lot of the children in the corns and I think that that's a lot of this is this movie. Um, once I started researching it, it was made for a lot less than some of the reboots and i've seen a lot of the reboots this one was apparently made for like less than a million but somehow it feels bigger and more effective than a lot of the reboots do because the reboots i all look at them and go like oh my god these are so cheaply done um to the point that they're painful but apparently this is less money but it feels like a bigger swing and it's really trying to do something interesting with the story too where this girl um she's like 10, 12, um is gets possessed. And basically um, she's in a cornfield. I think she's an orphan, if memory serves. And she gets possessed by something in the cornfield and then basically starts convincing the other kids in town to kill the adults, um, that they need to kill all the adults. And so, and the the town itself is in this um point of despair where a lot of the farms are having to sell off all their land. So, like it's a real impoverished community to begin with, and then this is brewing with the Kid, you know, it's not a perfect film by any chance, but there's something really interesting that the filmmaker was trying to do. And the girl who's playing that lead girl, she's like a really good actress. Like that was a good performance out of a 12 year old. So, so you're least... saying
0: children of the corn seven or nineteen or whatever it is is not a perfect movie.
1: You know, I'm gonna I caught you with that. <laughs> I've okay. seen I have seen a lot of children of the corns. And again, they're all very much like, you know, Isaac's ghost is back and saying he who walks behind the rose or, you know, they're all kind of playing on that Gatlin vibe. This doesn't even use Gatlin like it feels like a full reboot, but it's just trying to use that pastoral heart and it doesn't necessarily lean heavy into Mm. the he who walks behind the rose mythology, it kind of goes someplace else with it. So Kudos for trying something pretty original. So I got my graphic novel um left, but go ahead and hit yeah, me with your other one. one
0: I, I did watch The Whale, which I just caught up on the last couple Oscar movies, last couple of days, and I will say, even though I won't do it here, because it's Aronofsky, he's still hitting horror beats in this story. It's it's a hard movie to watch at the start because it's you know Brendan Fraser in a lot of makeup, a lot of you know prosthetics, and it's kind of um torturous, like kind of painful mm-hmm. to watch like somebody in that much pain to be honest but it's got some really interesting stuff on I feel like on a kind of horror level of the horror of being a shut-in the horror of being trapped inside you know yourself so that was interesting but no my favorite thing I saw this week which I loved the first half is one of the best films I've seen this year and then the second half it serves an idea that that i found less interesting uh this was one that i was hoping to see it last year when we did our top 10 but it didn't come out till this week uh on home video uh it is called holy spider this mm-hmm. was the iranian oscar contender by ali Abbasi, uh, who made that film border a couple of years ago that's like i think he's iranian but has grow- like left iran at some point and start lived in like switzerland or somewhere so it was a lot more free with the kind of movies they could make um anyway this one man the first half of this movie is one of the most tense Things I've seen this year, it it just opens in the with sex workers. Something I wouldn't have even known could exist in Iran, to be perfectly honest. Outside of being ultra secretive, Um, this is set in a holy city of Iran called uh, Mashhad, and it's uh, you just open with this woman, you know, uh, putting on makeup and kind of hitting the street, and you know, you see there's other people, but you also get the sense that a lot of people are looking at her like knowing what she is because it's not as obvious because she still has to wear all black and she has to be covered and you know it's still very different than what our idea would be um of somebody working on the street and she goes out and she you know gets a ride with a guy on a motorbike picks her up and there's some chatter in the background that there's been killing so you know there's a tension um and somebody's who who they call the spider killer and uh you know sure enough you're watching this real time Um, you know, you're just kind of thrown in and you're just watching her try to survive. And it's very emotional as this person man kills her. And then you're kind of stuck with the man for a while and you realize then he does it again and you're kind of same kind of setup. And then the story kind of kicks in where you meet this female journalist uh, who is kind of uh, she kicks ass, but she's not from the city. So she's from a better, a a little slightly more progressive place. She comes to the town. This is based on a true story Um, and she decides that, you know, she wants to find this killer uh and uh she kind of has to go undercover essentially to like like she's going to be on the street to see if she can get it and it gets very dangerous and it's got you know pretty breathtaking uh scenes where you're just like just worried for her uh the killer is what's interesting about the movie is he is not even though his actions are as bad as any serial killer the point of the movie is basically he feels what he is doing is right he is cleansing the streets of the holy city so he is not even he in his mind he's not doing this out of some dark kink he's got a family he's got kids mm-hmm. and so the first half you're watching that like, go oh yeah but you're just some fucked up guy the, the the structure of the movie at the exact halfway point it flips to be about the court case and him convincing people that he's actually a hero of the people and the woman journalist trying to like you know do everything she can to make sure he gets taken down and it's pretty i mean it's still well made movie but it's pretty hard to watch because it's a different culture than uh our culture and uh yeah his his he's pretty convincing at his it becomes more about an idea the second half of the movie the first half is like a zodiac movie the second half is a, more of a kind of a political court case kind of thing and but still fascinating movie less of a horror film in the second half than the first but still do recommend it I, it's it's unique and like i said the first half was so tense that i i think it's worth watching for sure um and that's just called holy spider and it is uh, on amazon and whatnot but i you
1: have to pay for it Yeah, I've been wanting to see this one.
0: Me too. I, I was every week. I was looking like, is it streaming yet? Is it streaming? Never was. So.
1: I will round us out with my graphic novel pick of the week. This one is from 2022. So this one um, I actually picked up like right when it came out and it took me a sec to get to it. But this is The Dark Room. This was actually recommended to me by one of our listeners on Twitter. Um, Please send me your graphic novel recommendations. Mm I'm always searching. Um, By the way, Nice House on the Lake um, Volume 2 just released this week. So I just, I pre-ordered it. it I'll borrow yours. It should be here like (laughs) tonight, I think it's supposed to arrive so I'm pretty excited about it. Um but anyway, tonight I'm talking about the dark room. And this one is um from image and I think this existed only as a book like usually with these graphic novels that I read, they usually start as weekly comics and there are some that I'll read as weekly comics but a lot of times I'll wait for the volumes to come out because I like them. Um, I do have my bag and boarded selections but yeah, this one, as far as I can tell, it was only as a book at least I don't remember seeing it um, in the shops beforehand. But yeah, Dark Room, it's about um, a female paranormal detective. She's basically like paranormal FBI and she's known um, around the world for being able to solve these paranormal cases And so one day this guy shows up who says that he is looking for a camera that has been around for a really long time that photographs true evil. And he shows all of these pictures from a variety of time periods. And everybody like in the picture will look really fucked up, like one eye is too big or they've got tentacles coming out of their mouths. Um, And he says that what it is, is if you take a picture of someone, it will show how evil they are. It will show their true evil. Um, and so he is basically hiring her to go find the camera and he's willing to pay any price for it. And she's immediately like, okay, well, why the fuck do you need the camera this bad? There's gotta be something more to it. And then you see her emerge into this underground New York City culture. It's that New York City in contemporary times where she is interacting with ghosts and cursed beings Mm -hmm. and all of these different creatures trying to figure out, um, you know, to solve the case, to figure out not only where the camera is, but why this guy wants it so bad and what he's planning on doing with it. This is a really fun contemporary take of old world monsters because you're going to have like, you know, your vampires or werewolves or things like that. But it's doing something really fun really hip and really um contemporary urban environment with it so i had fun with this um the hunt for the camera ends up taking her into the dark room which i won't spoil because that's like the coolest part of the movie or the the graphic novel to the point that i was picturing it as a movie like i want that to exist in a movie um what the actual dark room is talk about liminal spaces which we're about to in a sec It is very much one of those. Um, But yeah, it's basically super contemporary neo-noir with this really supernatural bend and really good art. I had a blast with this one, and I hope that they are continuing this series um, because I really want more out of this character. So this, again, The Dark Room from 2022. Thank you to whichever listener had recommended this to me.
0: I took a photo of you while you are talking, and you had spiders coming out of your ears.
1: Oh, did I? That is
0: your true evil.
1: Ooh, I went... Yeah, you did. And, hold on. Why do I have children walking into my room? Well,
0: it's okay. Cause we're about to transition. So, it's okay. Cool. So uh, there we go. It's, it's the perfect transition. Kids walking into the background of your liminal space. Of I my mean,
1: liminal space. I this can't is... think
0: of a better way to introduce. Uh, at some point you should sell that haunted house. I should. Land. I should. Um, Kids uh, just
1: roaming everywhere. Just, you know, with their diseases and their video games. And yeah. But we'll um, save
0: our gripes for deep cuts. That's where, if you want to hear us complain and watch deep, weird movies. And complain about our lives. That's the place to go.
1: Satanic orgies, y'all.
0: That's where. That's where to go. Uh, that's a guarantee. But yes, let's turn our attention oh, to our
1: very quickly. Oh. Rondo nominated Colors of the Dark. We forgot to mention that up top. We got.
0: We are like champions at being nominated. I uh, think our is, conversion rate is low. I think six, we're one in ten, one yeah. in ten, or
1: something. One in ten. <laughs> it's you know, I I I'm honored to get nominated every single year. Colors of the dark. We've been nominated every year since we started this version of the show. I, I, I'm looking um, at
0: uh, my Rondo as we speak, and it's from. I didn't realize when it's from. It's from 2000, 2015 for Killer POV. So. And we were we're nominated every year for Shockwave. It was even for
1: Shockwave. So yeah, Uh, we've been nominated every year for Colors of the Dark. I'm just honored to be at the party, y'all. So thank you again for nominating us. I don't campaign
0: for these things anymore. I've got my statue. I'm good
1: vote yeah. and um yeah hopefully we might get another little bald guy to put on our desk that's- do,
0: do a do a write-in if you have any uh, do a write-in for a book for uh our friend graham skipper's Frankenstein, and uh, not frankenstein's godzilla book yes. which must have taken him for freaking ever to do it's a massive time to- i feel uh that was underrepresented so mm-hmm. like do a little write-in we'll give graham yeah, give the little, skipper some love
1: well And, you know, you could always just drop us in as like Monster Kids, whatever, like Monster Kid Hall of Fame. We won't gripe, you know. So um, anyway, with that, let's bring on another true Monster Kid as we dive into some liminal horrors. Tonight's episode of Colors of the Dark is brought to you by Athletic Greens and their nutrition drink, AG1, a product that Elric and I have been taking every day. After months of being in quarantine, Elric and I both wanted to improve our health in the new year. So we decided to try Athletic Greens. It's a health supplement that actually tastes great and really boosts your energy. Plus, it's from New Zealand, which Elric loves.
0: So what is AG1? Uh, With one delicious scoop of athletic greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, all those things.
1: I started taking mine daily right before my breakfast um, and before I started in with the coffee. So it became this thing that I was looking forward to as soon as I got up in the morning. It lets me know that I'm getting the nutrients I need. And after trying to choke down an assortment of homemade kale and quinoa smoothies I was making, I gotta say, the taste of this is great. It's got this wonderful lemon flavor. And it's lifestyle friendly, whether you are keto, vegan, dairy free, paleo, or gluten free. As you guys know, I have crazy food allergies, and it is free from all of the eight major allergens, which I was really impressed with. AG1, it's a small micro habit with big benefits, and it costs less than $3 a day, so way cheaper than the cold brew habit.
0: Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition, especially heading into the flu and cold season. It's just one scoop in a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. I take it like 30 minutes before coffee, and it actually has given me a little boost of energy, which has been great. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash c-o-t-d again that is athleticgreens.com backslash c-o-t-d to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance
1: We are excited to welcome to the show someone who has been with us before, but we have not talked to him recently and definitely not about this awesome new book that he just released. Welcome, Grady Hendricks. How you doing?
2: I'm, I'm doing okay. Um, I just, uh, all I want to do is sit here and whisper, come upstairs, <laughs>
0: Look under the bed. It is kind of liminal behind you. Yeah, you know, it's exactly. dark it does. And we're on the internet. You know? It does
1: look <laughs> liminal. Um, so we are going to be talking about liminal horrors tonight, which is kind of a whole new uh, ball game in horror. And I mean, we can talk about how some of these have existed previously, but then how they're kind of having a day right now. But first. I really want to dig into how to sell a haunted house because this has been the <laughs> highlight of my um, commute for the past couple oh. of weeks. Um, oh, are you uh, listening
2: to the audio book? I am. So
1: yeah. How well, I've that? been I've been going back and forth. I do this all the time. Where I'll like. Buy the book, and then I go back and forth, um, because I I always have to like moments when I'm you know able to sit down and chill, and then others when I'm in the car, and um, yeah. So far, the book has been amazing. I am not through, so you were not allowed to blow the end to me yet. Like, as as a
2: writer, thank you for buying it in two formats.
1: (laughs) I told Elric, you're, you're
2: paying for this apartment.
1: I do that at all I was and this is the other one I'm in the middle of um the good girl's guide to murder and I go back and forth like I always end up buying books twice and even like some of the ones that I'm getting ready to read I I will end up buying oh, yeah. it twice because I can't I never can sit down and read but then other times I really want to so yeah I'm I'm a sucker for the different formats but um anyway well, give us the so, synopsis yeah. give
0: the audience who don't know anything about this yet. Oh, what is yeah. that the hook
2: it's 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 very straightforward. It's a, a, a pair of adult siblings who don't get along and they have to uh, get past their differences when their parents die and they need to clean out and sell their childhood home, which is of course haunted. It's right there in the title. Uh, and it's haunted by puppets and dolls, which is mm. gross. So I'm sorry <laughs> about that
1: that was Not that my- was one of the fun parts is um you know there's puppets all through there's dick puppets, even it's it gets weird um so- that that actually
0: brings up an interesting thing though because we all have kinder trauma from dolls and puppets and things like you know anything uncanny from our childhood, but that's a visual fear. I'm very curious how that is as a as something you read about like you're putting that in the novel form, I'm curious how you did did that ever occur to you that
2: you have to now translate this quality? No, I mean, you know, it's, um, I wanted to get away too from the movie image uh-huh. that we had, you know, the little porcelain face, scary yeah. Annabelle looking doll. Uh, and, and I wanted to do more stuffed animals, Muppety mm. kind of things, and then more theater puppets. So it was nice to get away from the visual. It just, you know what I mean? It was yeah. just, uh, yeah. And, and I like, you know, I, I really don't find puppets and dolls that scary like I it's I was incredibly traumatized by the clown doll and poltergeist
1: yeah I think most like of we us were, were. Yeah, yeah that was, that was yeah. very much a generational thing but I'm the same way where I do not particularly find porcelain dolls or, or any type of thing like that like little clown dolls scary but my kids do which is weird mm. because I, I literally have like horror shit hanging all over my house but the thing that freaks them out the most is this like antique porcelain doll that like my grandmother gave me eons ago and it's out in the garage now because they won't let me put it in the house um so there's definitely something about the the glass eyes that I think yeah
2: get. well and you know I, I was just doing my book tour and um a lot of people were telling me that their parents I think they're called twin dolls or me dolls but their parents would get dolls that looked like them made oh. when they were kids
1: uh, Oh, which I, that's kind of horrifying
2: that's, yeah that's that's real close to child abuse um <laughs> But it doesn't age older. Grady. It doesn't age, you do. <laughs> that's the thing. You get older and your doll doesn't. Like creepy. Dorian that's Gray
0: shit. Weird. It's not good.
2: <laughs> exactly. Well, and also, you know, a lot of people sort of go, "Ooh, dolls, puppets gross." But then I I point out to them like how many people have cubicles loaded with Funko's and Baby Yoda dolls and all that. I mean, that's the crap that's going to be tr- you know, they our kids are going to be dealing with when we're old and and Mm -hmm. weary um all our (laughs) shit
1: i want my kids to be like packing me up to go to the the old folks home or the convalescent home and they're putting all of my like funko jason funko i can't wait for that honestly (laughs) hold on mom let's get all your satanic panic books in the box yeah yeah.
2: well it's funny too i mean like our parents are mostly of a generation where there wasn't a lot of physical media mm-hmm. beyond books, um, but our kids are going to have to deal with Blu-rays and DVDs and hard drives and all this just crap, um, yeah. you know. And that's what it's going to be to them—just junk. It's—it's. It's, I don't know. It's weird. It's—it's a, it's a different. I, I did a. I had to clean out. A friend of mine died, and we had to clean out his house, and he was a big collector, and it was very weird to be seeing, you know, box sets of discs that I coveted just go into goodwill. Yeah. You know, it was just more junk to go in the box.
0: Wait, they're gonna throw away my criterion collection. Is that what you're saying? They're like totally kids, they're gonna tossing. fuck with my
1: criterions? Your kids well, wouldn't they're... know what to do with them right now.
2: I know. Yeah, exactly. Well also there's an there's an element to cleaning out someone's house after they die that uh where the emotional overwhelming of it meets the physical overwhelming of it just yeah how much junk you have and after a while it's like oh the Criterion Ingmar Bergman box that you know Goodwill Goodwill. like you know like the Fellini Ingmar Goodwill the Godzilla shot Goodwill like you know it's just you just stop caring about Mm. stuff I remember we were cleaning out my friend's house the first day it's like oh look at this look at that oh he had this by day three it's like put it in a box I don't give a shit
0: well, I remember the special quality of, of the objects that were imbued with um, meaning to the person. Mm-hmm. So not yeah. criterion collection, but like that object that I have a Godzilla next to me that means more than any object I have, but it's not because it's Godzilla it has nothing. It's just a personal thing, right? But yeah. if you can't explain that to people, when people yeah. come in, this is just crap and it's lost its story and i think the the best haunted house stories like the changeling type ones always will find an object that has some sort of meaning yeah and they'll carry that through even if the person doesn't instantly acknowledge or understand it um yeah
2: well and it's also amazing how many like 19th century haunted house stories are all about people's crap um oh gosh what was the one i was reading uh but it was like you know there's a bed and every one of the family is born in the bed and everyone of the mm-hmm. family dies in the bed and like the new lord of the is like i hate this bed and has <laughs> it like chopped up and then it like you know, there's a curse and everyone dies and the bed comes back and the house runs in. But it's always like, you know- Deathbed,
1: the bed that eats people. (laughs) That should be the prequel. That's the prequel. The (laughs) the prequel on (laughs) Deathbed.
2: Exactly. But these, I mean, they all have these sort of Dalton Abbey trappings because they're all stories from the 19th century and the 20s, but they're all about crap. Portraits and necklaces and lockets and libraries and beds. And it's just junk. It's stuff.
1: Well, there's always been kind of this tendency as well to have the ghost talk through an object. Like even Mm -hmm. if, you know, it's a phonograph, it's a a camera that, you know, it's always got to be something that the ghost is talking through. But I feel like our kind of obsession with the object even goes back to like Fall of House of Usher where it's literally the house is the thing that's like collapsing around them as they go through all the trauma. So,
0: But you guys were just talking about dolls and and I disagree with you guys in terms of whether it's certain dolls or creepy. But I think a lot of that, uh you, whether it was, you know, from ideas of voodoo ceremonies, right, that we don't understand, or the idea of putting a spirit inside a doll's frame, even if these aren't real occurrences, they do a lot of our fears of these things come from actual, whether they're bullshit ceremonies or not, people's belief systems, did revolve around, you know, things like that. So I I understand why there's inherently creepy. Uh, aura to some of those objects I think Dave's mom she has a doll
1: from it's probably the 1920s like it was his great-grandmother's and it came from Italy but it's got real fucking hair and that's the thing that creeps me out because I'm like this person died like a hundred years ago and I'm literally holding a doll with their hair like how fucked up is that and yeah so that one freaks me out we that
2: that kid's book um witch doll by Helen Morgan It has a a French governess who turns children into dolls by fitting a tiny little wig made of their hair on this doll. Um, But yeah, no, but just what you were saying a second ago, uh, you know, I mean, there's a commandment, you know, no graven images. Uh, Mm. and false gods like there's always been a thing with making a uh it's what is it uh in that shitty book golden bow a sympathetic magic you know Mm. i do something to this thing that shaped like a person and i'm doing something to a person
1: yeah
0: and our idol you know by putting Christ you know, usually there's replicas of Christ that are shaped the size of dolls or whatever. And obviously that's probably not something I think he would be into (laughs) right? if he was around.
1: You don't think Christ is into creepy dolls? I don't don't think Christ
0: is into his own image. I think he's actually much cooler rock star than that if he was around.
1: So I, on a much broader writer question, have to ask kind of how do you, um, and I just asked um, Stephen Graham Jones this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm having fun kind of getting every writer's different take. How do you decide what idea is going to become a book? Because like most writers that I know, myself included, like you have notebooks full of just random brain leakings. And how do you then decide like, well, that thing I thought of two weeks ago that I just wrote down four words. I think I can get a book out of that. Like, how do you decide which is the one to go forward with?
2: Yeah, well, there's two things. One is um, usually it's been kicking around for a while. Um, and oftentimes it it crossbreeds with another idea and um, you just start getting a feeling for what has enough gas in the tank to make it over the finish line. Um, and I usually have something. Um, usually my books have two things in them that are just kind of for me that no one else cares about. But one is always there's some kind of writing challenge I want, like, you know, how to sell a haunted house. I really wanted to write a family. I hadn't written a family before, most of my characters, like if they were in a family, it was a really minor part of the story and families are hard Uh, There's because families are 90% backstory. So there's so much backstory that's not even on the page. Um, And then usually there's some question that really bugs me uh, that I'm writing about. Like I really wanted to, with How to Sell a Haunted House, um, sort of figure out this relationship we have with inanimate objects. Because uh, it's weird and complicated, and also on top of that, my family's all dealing with you know, and I think a lot of people are with COVID. We all became really aware of of how fragile the health of our parents mm-hmm. are, and um, so my family's sort of wrestling with that. Like, are we a family still when our parents die, which will probably happen in the next five years or so? I'm there. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, so yeah, there's usually some question I don't know how to answer, so I'm gonna write a book about it and some technical challenge. But then on a more basic level, you write the book that you can sell. Um, You know, I really wanted to write a book set in a hospital and my publishers were just like, nah, that sounds like a thriller and we hired you to write horror and you're gonna write horror. Um, And so like the book I'm writing now for next year, hopefully, It's really been hard because my publisher went for it, um, but it's changed a lot since they went for it. And it's actually gotten really, really difficult. And um, I wish I could bail, but I can't (laughs) because they already paid for it.
1: they're and also a big you know,
0: listener of our show. So this is
2: exciting.
1: They're for totally them. huge. Total.
2: <laughs> they're <laughs> in this right now. Oh, he's loving so it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but also, you know, and one thing I learned early on is, and this sounds like common sense, but you'd be amazed at the number of writers who don't do it, which is you never want to write a book. Your publisher doesn't want to sell. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so if I ever have a publisher, like um, over at Quirk, my editor, Jason, uh, I had pitched him and he was good with, um, southern book club's guide to slaying vampires and i spent about seven weeks writing that before he told me that sales and marketing just didn't have any enthusiasm for it and um he's like you can still write it we'll still publish it i mean we said we would but i was like you know if sales and marketing aren't psyched about it why would i keep writing it and so that's i did we sold our souls instead um so yeah so you won't Mm. so but i could have stuck with it yep there you go yeah uh i could have stuck with it but you don't want to do a book that your publisher doesn't want to publish um and i've had i've had another like final girl support group uh quirk turned down a couple of times uh before i took it to berkeley uh and i get it like when they turned it down i probably wouldn't have been the book it was going to be it was you know years later i took it to berkeley so you know and, and that was the right thing to do but you just it's amazing how many opportunities editors don't like to say absolutely flat out. No, I forbid you. Um, they like to sort of show stinky faces and then let you make the call. And I'm always astounded at the number of writers who don't pick up on the social cues and just keep writing that book. I know that you're makes- and sometimes it works out.
1: Yeah, no, that know- makes so much sense.
2: I know you're a big
0: movie guy. Um, in terms of writing, though, what do you feel most comfortable when you're in the groove of writing? Are novels where you actually feel happiest writing, or do you feel the same when you're also writing screenplays or adaptations of your own work?
2: Oh, I like both. I mean, yeah. you know, screenplays are really, really uh, um, a different thing. They're much more crafted in some ways. Like, they're, they're, they're so few words. You just mm-hmm. go over it and over it and over it. And novels are big, you know, novels are all interior and screenplays are all exterior. Mm -hmm. Um, So I like both really, honestly. Um, And right now I'm sort of doing a screenplay and a book at the same time, it seems for a little bit. And I I enjoy going back and forth. Um, Novels didn't really do much for me in terms of writing screenplays. Uh, but screenplays have taught me a lot about writing novels, um, which has been good. I mean, I always have a log line. It just keeps me oriented when I'm writing a book. Um, screenplays make you so, or for me at least, so much more aware of wasting the reader's time. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm, I'm astounded at how many scenes I have of people sitting in cars by themselves and not going anywhere in oh. horror store um you know it's like why am i wasting people's time like if that was a movie there'd be another person in the car they're talking to they're going somewhere they don't want to be or they really want to get to something's in the way you know just that kind of fuel Mm -hmm. efficiency uh screenplays are really good at also you know i like i think of my characters as actors very um unknown underpaid actors but i still like them to have you know they need to make an entrance. They need to, uh, if I've got them on the page, I need to make it work their time. I don't want my actor character turning to me and being like, why am I in this scene? Like, I don't have any good lines. I got nothing to do. Hmm. How do you
0: translate uh, your, own? I mean, it's not as usual. Like usually a novelist's work gets adapted by someone else. Uh, Stephen King, you know, especially he's only done it a couple of times with his own own work really, or a handful of times. How do you find that process of adapting a novel to the screen?
2: Oh, I like it. I like it a lot. Um, And it's, you know, no one's thought about that story more than me, period, full stop, (laughs) like 100%. Um, And so I kind of know how it works and I know what can change and what can't. I'm really happy to change stuff. Um, I got no problem with that um, as long as the essential underlying story remains the same. And like when I was doing Horror Store, you can't show on screen someone thinking, or yeah. someone changing their mind, um, you can show what they do, but you can't show those things. And the two big moments in Horror Store: Amy trapped in a chair, thinking about her terrible life, and and basically giving up. And then later, Amy changing her mind and change having to not do that. Those two things radically changed that that story, mm-hmm. uh, but not in ways that bent the story out of shape. It just ways that like. I really had to find workarounds, um, <clears throat> which was, which was, which was fun. You know, it's, um, there are parts of the movie adaptation I like a little better than the book and there are parts I'm not sure work as well. Uh, but, you know, it was, I, I think it's fun.
1: That's cool. So how do you I get ideas to begin with? Do they just come to you or do you find yourself like tapping the movie well or things like that?
2: I try to stay away from movies just because movies and books are so different. Mm -hmm. And um, I spent a couple of years doing that thing where like you're writing stuff in LA and you're getting to pitch a lot. Hey, do you want to pitch on American werewolf remake? Hey, do you want to pitch on this spider movie? Hey, And I did that for a while. And then I realized I was spending two weeks, three weeks coming up with a pitch that was never really going to go anywhere like I wasn't who they were going to hire and um and and the worst of those was I mean it was a really fun thing to do but I worked with this director for over a year on a movie that not only never went anywhere but we never got paid for and Mm -hmm. I was just like that can't happen again like and so um and so I try to stay away from coming up with movie ideas or anything. If someone wants me to write a movie, they they will come to me and say, Hey, you know, we want to do this. Or, you know, I just it's just not worth the time it's to me. Hard. And that sounds really
1: Yeah, it exactly. doesn't and I remember the first time that I had gotten asked to pitch on one of like the bigger franchises where you're yeah. doing a reboot. And I was so excited and I spent like weeks working full-time on my pitch and then i find out that they probably had 50 other directors in there and then they didn't even end up making it like the studio was like we'll circle back later and that was it and it never happened and it's so disheartening no it's it totally
2: yeah and also like if i have a good idea the last thing i want is for it to get tied up in some project that's never going to happen that then i can't really use it again Um, you know, so I just, it's fun. And it's one of those things where you start talking to someone in a general meeting or something, and then you get all excited and then you're kicking an idea around and you're like, ah, and then before you know it, you're, doing what you just said spending two or three weeks on a pitch that no one's gonna buy
1: eight weeks writing it on spec and you're still just like i don't even know who's gonna buy this because somebody uh some studio said vampires aren't cool right now and that's it and we're done and it's dead in the water i remember rudy sorry I was just um, remembering a quote from Craig Perry um, when he came to talk to my class a number of years ago. He's the final destination guy. But him saying that movies literally want to die. That That is every movie from the moment that you think of it as you're writing it all the way through it getting made. Your job is always to keep the movie from killing itself because they want to die. And <laughs> it's just this constant like that's our job in Hollywood is just this continuous like resuscitation of everything. Um, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> no, that sounds
2: about right.
0: Yeah, Rudy Wurlitzer, the guy who wrote Two Lane Blacktop and a few good books. He he said it was his experience with Hollywood is a uh, death by waiting. It's the one place you're, you're waiting at stoplights, you're waiting on development, yeah, like every single thing about LA is about waiting for something, and you will literally just die waiting for something. And I yeah. was like, that's that's pretty disheartening, but <laughs> but, but there's some truth there. Um, I do want to ask you that the, the other thing though, and I and by the way, thank you for. Um, uh, for Paper Eggs from Hell, because obviously a lot of us have gotten some amazing book recommendations, you know, just novels that could otherwise kind of like what we do with movies, I feel like where we're always looking for deep cuts to try to make sure right. they stay alive. Um, I just finished Elizabeth Bergstrom's um, Black Ambrosia, which was uh, a, oh, yeah. a, a mutual friend of ours recommended from that set of things. and And it was so good. And I was just curious yeah. how that writing that and reading all of them again as you probably had to for that how that maybe influenced your own writing as a novel like just if it had an impact on you as a novelist.
2: it didn't really have an impact on me as a writer because so many of those books were written in the 70s and 80s when the style was so different Mm -hmm. um it's really interesting you know it's the books were baggier they wanted you know you wanted to hit a certain length you wanted them to feel a certain thickness a lot of that's because Stephen King was writing big thick Mm -hmm. books and so um and and um there was more sex in books because people were like oh readers want sex um and so there were so many differences that it's um it was really it was it's great to see them all you know out there and sort of like feel like oh if i want to write about killer kids i've got a pretty good idea of what killer kids are what the landscape is in books but um in terms of writing style stuff, not really. Um I did but I, I think it's interesting what you just said, you know, is film fans, I mean, I live I live in a world where there's a four K restoration of Ebola syndrome. Yeah. Um, that that's, <laughs> you know it's Anthony
0: Wong love is strong in this world <laughs>
2: Yeah. Like like Night Tide, you know, yeah. movies that never got released are out on Blu-rays with extra features in the meantime amazing books that are incredible yeah they're just done over forgotten and and I find that so weird uh because book people are as passionate as movie people and I don't get why so much of it and and part of it's legal you know um I work with Valancourt bringing back some of these books into print and you know the the list of books where we just run into publisher red tape over the most dumb things, just that we can't bring back into print is just appalling. Um, you know, it, it's just such a drag. So, on the one hand, maybe that's part of it, but yeah, uh-huh. it's 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 really depressing. And to see publishing doesn't quite do as well as movie do you know with Mm -hmm. with the backlist and and one of the things i also really want to bring is there's an energy to movie fandom that um i i wish was a little more present in books where people get really excited and and people get excited about books but that kind of like excited movie nerd babble you can do when you meet another movie nerd like i find that sometimes with books you find that a lot in um uh I, I especially see that with YA fans mm-hmm. and, and YA is such a broad category it's stupid to even say anymore but like I was at a YA uh convention called Y'all Fest a while back a festival down in South Carolina and Charleston where I'm from and man I, some of these kids were like talking and I the references were so deep into what they were reading that I could not follow it so I really like you know but then when you get to be when you get out of YA it gets a little stuffier i think sometimes and there's a real push against genre and Mm -hmm. so i find i don't know i want to inject a little of that sort of film fan energy into it and that was what paperbacks from hell was an attempt to do
0: well but we had yoda telling us to read when we were kids and things like that i do feel like there's a bit of a missing link in making reading something uh I don't want I don't know if it's a difference in our education systems now but I do think that's part of it and I think I think reading could use some help <laughs> you know what I mean yeah. especially I with think... devices I think devices in kids hands have made an impact because, I don't know because you know, a Stephen King novel I don't know if it would be the same result now I i'm so not cool.
1: exactly i mean and marnie is a reader i will say like she she will sit down and read but what she sits down and reads she's not going to read like a novel cover to cover but she burns through graphic novels and they're having mm-hmm. like the graphic novel space is huge in adolescent lit right now and why yeah. that's what i i literally just finished writing um and it's massive right now and i mean she will turn through those. I mean, we probably go through two a week. Um, so, and those are really fueling her going forward. Cause we've been pushing her into more like Mary Han books and things like that, which is a YA writer, um, Um, just because she is kind of consuming so much. So I've really enjoyed seeing those graphic novel books because even kind of the lower grade ones like Dog Man or um, The Bad Guys and things like that, I think that those are really kind of picking up um, a new generation of readers that I've enjoyed. Like I'm able to share them with my son too. Yeah. Um,
2: Yeah, well, that's the big one, right? I mean, you know, I've seen that happen in my family, the whole boys don't read thing because, you know, that's the conventional wisdom. And, you know, I- I get it to some extent. I mean, I see it happen with my one of my nephews, but it is—I don't know. It's—it's it's a chicken and egg thing mm-hmm. for me. It's kind of like they're. Well, I guess video games are the big competition. If I had yeah. had Call of Duty when I was thirteen, I wouldn't read when I was a teenager either.
0: It's the competition for films too now. I mean, is the gaming mm-hmm. industry is the growth? Yeah. But yeah, like Herzog's whole thing was film is the art of the literate. So I, I do think there's there is some probably it's a lot easier to become a, a massive film fan um, than a big reader. So you'll
2: yeah. always have a little competition there. But
1: yeah, fantastic. Oh, and I ahead. was
2: I was lucky growing up too. My parents didn't care what I read. We were a big book family, but it was like comics, magazines, uh, adult books, kid books. They did not care. I mean, and I and I think there is a level where, like, you want to direct your kids towards some stuff and others. I get that instinct, but, mm-hmm. like, they're reading, man. Don't put the brakes on.
1: The rule in my house growing up that I still have with my kids now is I never had a set bedtime. Like I did not have a lights out. My parents mm-hmm. would send me to bed at eight o'clock, but I could read until I fell asleep. And so right. there were nights, I remember being probably in like fourth grade, same as my daughter, where I would probably read till 10 p.m. Um, but my parents, as long as I was reading, it was cool. And it meant that I fell asleep every night with a book in my face. And I still do right. through this day. Elric knows that I, I I've talked often about how I will read and then I'll literally hit myself in the face a couple of times with a book and then I'll be like, okay, now I should go to bed. So yeah. yeah, but we still hold that rule. And yeah, I don't restrict what my kids read. I probably should. I mean, Marnie's reading, yeah. she's in YA graphic novels right now. And she just read one called Coven, um, which is really good. It was like teen witches, but it definitely has some stuff I think was over her head. But yeah, it's, she's reading, so I'm not going to hold her back.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and I, and kids like to read up, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, most kids encounter Stephen King, most people who like Stephen King encounter him when they're 12 or 13 for the first time.
1: Exactly. I
2: mean, I, that was me.
1: Yeah. So
0: imagine your, your camera's on you and you're reading in your bed and then the camera kind of tilts down to the weird corner of the bedroom and there's nothing really there. There's an old phone and nothing. And we just linger on it. And time keeps ticking, and we keep lingering, and we keep lingering, and that brings us to liminal horror. Let's do it.
1: So, li- I have one more question for Grady. Oh no, you can't go back. back. Oh, this God, is not how no. it works. Okay, fine. That I'll, is not I'll how transitions work. Becca. I'm gonna get it in. You at just the
0: butchered end. this transition. Oh, might as well ask it now. There's, no, no,
1: point no, no, no. We're transitioning. We're doing this. We're doing this. Jeez. We're in it's God, too late <laughs> it was just so smooth and then i just <laughs> fucked it up right there so yeah we're going with well it
2: that's good though liminal horror it's all about the transition it's all it about
1: is. being <laughs> weird okay so well,
0: there is a lot of explain this will be interesting though at the top though is there are so many different definitions pre kind of the internet horror mm-hmm. of liminal stuff because even michael mann's a liminal horror a liminal filmmaker like all his things if you watch heat it's all about these empty spaces right and, and, and david lynch obviously is the goat here but uh but it seems like it, the definition's kind of changing with what we're kind of talking about, I assume. Uh, something that seems more in, connected to lo-fi imagery, the internet, and creepypasta and all the stuff together, right?
2: Yeah, that seems to me. I mean, you know, to the reason I got interested in sort of this, this liminal horror stuff is just thinking about haunted houses and how mm-hmm. – um, real hauntings quote unquote you know so many encounters with ghosts happen in doorways or stairs or hallways Mm -hmm. which are considered those liminal spaces in your hall right They're the transition between spaces in your house between rooms they're not actual rooms in and of themselves um and yeah and then i started thinking you know that that this idea of liminality and and how it's 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 not where you're starting and it's not where you're finishing it's the in-between mm-hmm. um you know there's that big thing that the 70s were a liminal decade uh i'm writing a mm-hmm. book set in 1970 right now so i'm obsessed with the 70s um because the 60s we have a really strong idea of and the 80s we have a really strong idea of the 70s were just sort of this amorphous mushy part in the middle while they were the caterpillar was digesting itself inside the cocoon uh, mm-hmm. but yeah but you're right it does seem to be really it seems to be something different now. It seems to have, um, elements of surveillance culture in it, you know, um, footage that isn't always centered. Mm -hmm. Uh, the frame isn't always centered on the subject. It's oftentimes the actions happening out of frame. Um, there does seem to be an internet component to it. Um, yeah, I I'm not, it's definitely turning into something and I'm not sure if Ah. that's because how the tools we're using to create it are changing so much or if it's changing so much like i'm not yeah
1: i mean we've had liminal horrors for a long time actually um i'm gonna get all egg here because yeah. i i went through um eight years of latin and i had to take it again when i got to grad school and i never get to use this shit so here we go the actual word latin word lyman which is the the root of liminal, it means threshold like it actually does. And scientifically, what that word always means is kind of um, liminal is the place where you're not awake but you're not asleep yet it's like Mm. that in between where your brain's spinning um where you're thinking really weird shit but you're you're still pretty aware of stuff that's happening around you um and so i find that point to be really fascinating it's where i kind of like if you get woken up in the middle of the liminal phase you're like what the fuck was i thinking about lobsters on a coffee table like it's just a flood of weirdness and And it's when
0: you're young too because Mm -hmm. because that's when a lot of those dreams are most uh, you, you just, I mean, I still remember a couple of the nightmares I had that recurringly at about the age of five, six, but I don't remember what I would be dreaming as an adult. So I think a lot of these stories are about oh. people who are age-wise in a threshold age, mm-hmm. whether it's eight, mm. nine, ten you know, things are changing. You're not going to stay static in that space. Whereas when we become adults, we're so much more static, you know, just the last 30 years, just (laughs) you don't change as much as you do at that entry level.
1: But what's interesting for me is that a lot of the liminal horrors are all about being static. It's all about being stuck someplace, unable Mm -hmm. to transition, to be kind of stuck there. And I feel like we've had liminal horrors for a long time. Like even going back, I feel like most of like Santa Sangree and a lot of the, the weirder experimental like all maya darren is very liminal horror where it's kind of like just being stuck in this moment that you can't Mm -hmm. escape um but where we are seeing it really kind of have its moment right now is in these internet ones these ones that feel um experimental but very much kind of like you're you're stuck in this this loop and even i mean like we look at ones like skin Merink, or even one that um elric and i'm sure we'll discuss at the top of the show when we record that in a bit um outwaters and um we're all going to the world's fair was one that we both dug from last year
0: that one's that particularly that's the first one i saw that really, really felt. tight one if that one feels like if it had led to skinnerink in the same movie you, now you're talking about a great cinema yeah. <laughs> like like it's a great setup and it's interesting but it's not completely fulfilling and neither is skinnerink even though it's fascinating mm-hmm. but it feels like a nightmare it feels like a 15 minute nightmare but it's at 100 minutes it's it's something very different you know formally
1: i feel like we- oh go ahead <laughs>
2: no, no no go ahead
1: I was just going to say, but I feel like we've had um, these, but the ones as I was looking through, a lot of them deal with technology, which is even pre internet. Like as I'm looking through, I'm like Lost Highway. Okay, I feel that. Like Cube, Pulse, the Korean, not the American remake, but like Cairo, the Korean films, feels very liminal. Um, That's the
0: most. I think Pulse is the most of all these movies. It's, it's, It's it's, it's, but I think they all have internet at common. I think they have the kids, the people telling the stories Mm -hmm. for the most part are born you know, late 80s are living through the 90s, have the internet from the time they're, you know, children.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So
0: their viewpoint is different than ours, you know, 70s and 80s kids.
1: I was thinking all the Channel Zeros as well. I mean, especially Dream Door, but even going back to the first season, like it's very much like this liminal thing. Dream Door, I feel like, really, or not Dream Door, the one that's in a house um, where the girl is literally stuck in the oh, house. Um, I can't remember the name of that yeah,
2: season. I can't remember no um, the second season. No end yeah. Yeah. house. Yeah. No, no end house. No, I, no, enti- yeah, no. no exit. Uh, no End House, I think. Yeah, No
1: End House, yeah, where it's, and I mean, it's basically the same setup of vivarium, which I think is another liminal horror where it is just kind of this transitional, you're stuck there. Um, but Elric, who's the director who did Snake of June? Uh, oh, Shinya
2: Sukumoto. Yeah, yeah, Sukumoto, yeah. I feel yeah. like that's well done, <laughs> a
1: lot of liminal horror there. Um, Just looking at the work across the board, I feel like there's a lot. Well, of I think horror. a
0: lot of this is depending on the definition. Like, I do think you're right on all of those, like the the Dream State ones, that's coming more from the Lynch, idea of liminal mm-hmm. but but what this new one is seems to be about internet images like the like I don't sit on the internet looking at empty doorways and stuff but it sounds like a lot of people do on reddit and they're looking at uh, what is it called the back room is a big oh, oh, back rooms. rooms yeah my
1: son plays back rooms it's amazing it's but such, I think it's also like yeah. a
0: collection where people are yeah. showing also pictures and you know sharing these and so if people that's a different way to experience and as well mm-hmm. as creepypastas and all this stuff that's a different way of creating your own um kind of feedback loop entertainment like you're helping create it and you're sharing it and it's i think it's just a different thing than what i you know am used to but
2: i think you can really draw a line from what year was lost highway
1: 96, 96.
2: like you can really draw a line with lost highway on it and kiyoshi kurosawa's pulse on it mm. that mm-hmm. goes right to Skinamarink and outwaters yeah. you know that really there's something to there's something about the um the video footage that gets used. There's something yeah. about the way technology plays a part in it. There's something about the the surveillance, kind of the emptiness, yeah. um, and and there's an aspect too. A lot of times you'll see people talking about like like on uh, I think it's R liminal spaces or R liminal on on Reddit. Yeah. Uh, it's a lot of pictures of dead malls and like oh. you know um, things like that and. You feel a little like it's an autopsy of like sort of the 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 corpse of capitalism to some mm-hmm. extent, like here's all this retail that's just empty um you know, we were all told this was gonna be where we shop, and it's dead mm-hmm. um there there's something there's something about that that I don't know that all sort of ties that mm-hmm. edge of it together,
0: right. It's spaces that are meant to be busy and crowded and bustling. And instead you strip them. I was thinking of an image that struck me as really liminal is uh, the image, the key image from the beyond on the bridge. You know, this is oh, a yeah. bridge that's yeah. meant to be bustling Packs. with that. And instead it's empty and there's a person facing you with a dog. And it that's one of those images I always think about. And, and it's got a quality, you know, we talk about uncanny as well. I think all these things connect and and blur together a bit, but that, what's funny is last night I watched a non-horror film and I was because I knew we were going to be talking about this. I had no idea it was going to connect. But after Sun, which is nominated, you know, for Oscars, mm-hmm, sure. but it, it's unbelievable how much it leans into this. And there's a very dark kind of it's heading towards a dark conclusion, but it's so abstractly told through technology. And what it does is let's say it has a shot that will be on the guy, and say the girl's looking at him, the camera will just keep going down until it's resting on kind of nothing and it'll just linger for a few extra beats. And so the whole movie takes on this abstraction and when it gets to this kind of dark core by the end it's this what we're talking about that has actually created that in a way that a horror film does it was using those same kind of devices and I and I think it's very interesting to me that this like mainstream ish you know drama well, was achieving the same thing you know,
1: know what, like, oh yeah go ahead I feel like this is You know, we had talked during the pandemic about what type of films would roll out after the pandemic, because it's always like, and we had big discussions about this, you know, that like right after the Vietnam War, you get the seventies where everything's like hyper-violent it's very much like us working its shit out on screen with like Last House on the left and this incredibly emotional, cathartic stuff. you see the same like really post 9-11 where suddenly we're in hostile Saul territory. I feel like, and we we had talked, like, what will happen after the pandemic? And it was always, well, this isn't violent. It's national trauma, but it's not like we're being flooded with images of war and things like that. So will it still be that cathartic, extreme horror response? And honestly, liminal horror feels like the perfect response. It's one that, like, it seems well- the most obvious that we're... We're stuck in these spaces. We're stuck in these transitional moments that we can't escape. It's oddly painful, but not torturous. It's just existing becomes the torture. Stunted. It's very yeah. stunted. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, the images we've been flooded with for three years are of public spaces, uh, offices, all mm-hmm. of them empty, you know? Right, right. Uh, And so, of course, that's what the movies look like. And, you know, it's interesting because there is so... Uh, you know, I'm I'm a little stuck on this idea of the '70s as a sort of transitional or, or, or liminal decade between the '60s and the '80s, and uh, there was a writer I was reading who's who was talking about how the '70s were really defined by this sense of of disillusionment and cynicism and paranoia and boredom and rage, uh, this sort of frustrated rage, which really sounds like where we are now. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this real thing where we all feel like everything's changing but are we going back like the pandem- pandemic post pandemic are we going back to the status quo are things going to be different will q come out and there'll be whatever Q's going to bring to us and the world will change will mm-hmm. capitalism end you know like will we be be free like you know there is this idea of that, that we're in this like labor process right mm-hmm. now Um, that's incredibly painful and repetitive and endless. And, um, you know, what's it going to wind up being? yeah uh, so I mean, much
0: information like like i think there's gonna be i don't know if it's been made in this category a horror film just about all the information that we're faced with on a daily like yeah. so much more computing our brains need to do than they had to do in the 70s they're so limited to how much you had to take in on a daily basis in the 70s right but now it's just like you're gonna have to decode all these options and i i think there is a good horror film somewhere in there i don't know if that one's been made yet
1: i feel like <laughs> this is the worst movie to cite for this yeah. but George Romero was trying to get there in Diary of the Dead. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like he was like poking it a tiny bit. I mean, he, but he was then, always
0: ahead at the time. Yeah. It
1: kind of just, it did not work in execution, but kind of the idea of information dispelment, I felt mm-hmm. like was in there to a degree. And then it kind of fell apart the rest when of the
2: Well, you way. look at Pulse or. Um, That's a good one. Uh, yeah. Skin of Rink or Outwaters. Mm-hmm. I mean, so many of these, they deal with the technology not being able to keep up with the information. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these hard cuts. You've got like this diegetic sound getting blown out and, you know, distorted and the image being distorted. Um, one thing I kept thinking when I was watching Skin because I was like, I feel like this is the logical endpoint of the Doris Wishman School of Filmmaking <laughs> where it's just like, like the camera's pointed at a couch, and the person gets up and walks away, and the camera's still it's pointed at the couch. <laughs> like it's it's there's out of focus shots. And it reminded me a little bit. And tell me if this is just too out there, but there are ways where um all of this reminds me a little of porn in the oh. sense Oh, it's of,
1: totally like yeah.
2: Yeah. The cinematography is just trying to keep up with the actors and the tech, it's not very good technically. Uh, I mean, on purpose, but like, there's mic bumps, there's all the there, there's very much and they're boring blank rooms. I mean, it's more like old school porn, where it's yeah. like, here's a really boring room. Uh, yeah, internet sh-
1: porn has completely changed the shape of porn. Yeah. Like we're talking like 1990s, like not the stuff made by like Vivid or any of yeah. like the major companies, like when you were getting into the the bad underground porn. Yeah, it has that quality to it where it's awkward and weird and you can feel the tech behind the scenes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, you feel like something that's been mass produced is falling apart as you watch it, especially mm-hmm. with Skinamarink and Outwaters, but even all the way back to Pulse with all those like bad internet images and the mm-hmm. and the how they would hang and freeze and then like scramble forward a few frames. Like it is interesting that like, you know, it seems to be somewhat about technology eating itself.
1: Yeah.
0: And it, and what I like about all of these, like when we're just looking through them all, is that it's as horror lovers and horror filmmakers and whatnot, it, it's creating new feelings, mm-hmm. feelings that we haven't fully, we've explored some of this, art cinema has definitely explored some, you know, Lynch throughout his career, like Twin Peaks, obviously the, the Red Room itself is like one of these spaces, oh, right. you know, mm-hmm. uh, but, but I do think there's moments with all of these where I've been, when I finished uh, Outwaters uh, and... What I didn't know how to review them on, say, Letterbox compared to other movies where I could go, oh, that's a three star movie. I couldn't even put anything because yeah. I couldn't. I was yeah. going, I'm feeling something that I didn't feel in those movies and I don't fully understand it yet. But I know the moments where I was in, I was really in and very connected. Yeah. And then there's other moments where I'm drifting along like a bad dream. and And I just find that is something we should be listening to for all cinema. We should be looking at it and going, okay, there is some interesting stuff here that we can channel, you know, versus just our typical jump scare uh, technique of, say a Conjuring movie could learn a lot from these movies Mm -hmm. about other scares we can create, you know, which I think is great.
1: I think that what I have found most interesting uh, and this dawned on me with Skin and Marink*, was I have to work when I watch these films. Like I remember rolling in after I had watched Skin and Marink*. I went to teach my class the next day and I was telling my students about it. They were like, did you like it? And I was like, I don't know. Like I stared at Wayne Scotting for an hour and a half. Like I don't, Know exactly what was going on, but I thought about my actual viewing experience and I was working. Like I was searching the screen. I was doing the same with Outwater. I was mentally, you know, running, trying to keep up with everything. I was trying to figure it out. And I don't do that with Conjuring. I stuff popcorn yeah. in my face and let you tell me when I'm supposed to scream. And there's something different about the viewing experience where I walk away. And same thing happened with Outwater. I don't know if I enjoyed that movie. I enjoyed parts of that movie. And other times I was just in the experience going, I don't really know what's going on, but I don't want to turn it off. I mean, that one's um, more of
2: an assault than yeah. Skinner.
0: You're working, that one's just barraging.
1: That's yeah. a lot, that's a lot. Well, it right? is,
2: you know, there is an element where both of them, I mean, you're trying to figure out what's going on. You're searching mm-hmm. the frame to see what am I looking at? Yeah. Where am I supposed to, be? can I see outside this circle of light? You know, um, but but I also was really, I was really impressed with how traditional Outwaters was in Mm -hmm. terms of its structure. Um, You know, here's the cold open. Here's the people hanging out. We're going to get to know them. Okay, here's night one. Things are kind of creepy. Night two, it really gets wild. I was like, this is a very traditional horror structure. Mm I mean, it's Blair Witch to some extent. But it's it's sort of the like the the 3.0 version where technology is just having a nervous breakdown
1: Mm -hmm. Um, it's
0: when it commits to I think the thing that changes in that movie compared to why it's not just found footage is at a certain point you can't tell how you're even getting the image anymore so it's not the typical hey I'm filming everything it becomes a small image and you're like what where is that now coming from and so the cosmic horror has somehow changed the imagery and that's where I think it fits with these other I mean the big one none of us just talked about even though we've mentioned Lynch's like I remember when I saw Inland Empire in a theater That that felt different, even by Lynch's standards. It felt quite alienating. It felt like I didn't know how to. Usually, I just love his films when they end, and I know how I feel. That film, I had, I, I truly didn't know. I felt more alone in the universe. (laughs) I was confused. The deteriorated images instead of beautiful images that he's famous for, he went the opposite. He created like dark and like pixelated images. And so it's, I think it's fascinating that that, and that's well ahead of you know this this movement. And it, mm-hmm. and and even just a couple of years ago, there was one that I, I didn't see on any of these lists, but I think it deserves to be there. Did you see uh, Grady's Sator?
1: Oh, yeah. yeah that this is tight.
0: this, yeah, the film by one guy. Yeah. And he makes this film set in a cabin kind of forestry area where he has these cameras that are filming. I don't know if they're deer cams, mm-hmm. but he has to check them every night. And then that's being mixed with real footage that the filmmaker took of, I think, his grandmother who had Alzheimer's. And, the, and basically the whole movie is made up of these These, like, images from that mixed with some dark spirit thing, so it's kind of a Wendigo kind of vibe, but it's a handmade film, literally a movie that only one person made. The crew was one guy, you know, and so it's kind of a precursor to some of these ideas in some ways.
1: Yeah, That's really cool. I was going to say, the one that I didn't see on list that I feel like should definitely be there is Lux Saturna. I mean, Gaspar Mm. No Way in general tends to have kind of a more, um, you know, kind of transitional quality. I feel like you could probably put parts of Climax on there as well, because they are stuck in this space before they're supposed to be going on a big tour. They're just stuck there. Um, But with Lux Eterna, it is the movie before the movie. And Mm -hmm. it's all that like we're trying to get the movie started, but they can't. It's like this anxiety attack of like trying to get to the rolling point, but you're never going to get there. Um, So I find that to be very liminal.
2: Well, you know, one thing that these movies do that I think is really traditional in horror um, and and links them a little, I don't know how you guys saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I saw it, you know, I rented it from a video store with some friends in the 80s because we had Mm -hmm. heard it was famous. And, you know, we get this tape that's like a dupe that's got Texas Chainsaw Mass on the side and magic marker. Uh, It's in a clear case. And we put it in, like, we don't know any of these actors. We don't know any of this stuff. Like, it doesn't look like a normal Hollywood movie. It's not. And there is a thing where I think, um horror is the one genre that pretends to be true you know all the way back to like castle of Otranto. these are some letters i found that are about a real thing that happened um horror is always like you know turn to the screw let me tell you something that happened to this friend of mine's governess (laughs)
1: like
2: horror keeps saying this is a true story that happened to my friend's friend and um You know, Texas Chainsaw had that feeling. And I think a lot of these movies have that feeling because we don't know these people. We don't know these actors. And that's one of the reasons I think there was such, uh, um, for some of us like me and uh, you guys probably, there was such a rush in the beginning seeing like Asian horror movies, Japanese horror movies, Korean horror movies, because you didn't have the same reference points. You weren't like, oh God, Here's Toronto standing in for New York again. You're like, I don't know what city this is. I don't know these actors. Oh, that's that guy. Did I see him in something else? Like... With those reference points removed, I think horror becomes scarier. Mm-hmm. We um, always
0: want horror to be dangerous, and those who love yeah. horror and to be to change it up, it has to be just something different like that. I think you're completely right. It's the only genre that benefits by not having stars in it, in my opinion. Yeah. Films, mm-hmm. horror films with stars, I'm always quit going. Okay, well, it's either a gimmick, like they're going to die at the start, or I have. To, I know this person now survives and that takes something away from the experience, you know? Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. I feel like, you know, and this is, so this is my own private rant and then I'll shut the fuck (laughs) up. But like, you know, going around on book tour, uh, I didn't go to a single independent bookstore that wasn't doing gangbusters business. Now, part of that's because Hmm. if they were holding on by a thread, the pandemic put them out of the business. You know what I mean? There's been a, there's been a winnowing. But also, all these places were doing so much better. And part of that's because they felt like customers really sort of had a wake-up call with the pandemic about local businesses and bookstores. But part of it was so many of these bookstores have embraced genre. Mm-hmm. And the two big genres that sell like mofos for them are horror and romance. I was talking to bookstores that had had a tiny romance shelf four years ago that now had a whole section of the store developed for devoted to romance. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the horror genre, like you're saying, low budgets, no stars, we want that danger, those thrive. Mm -hmm. But somehow Hollywood has done a number on romance where it's like, we need big stars who have chemistry and a glossy look. But then you'll see something come along like once or something that'll just kick everyone's ass. With none of that, and I feel like romance in film has really been Nancy Myers making a movie right now with a hundred thirty million dollar budget. I, I, I read that today,
0: and that's a romance, a romantic yeah. comedy for one hundred thirty million. You're like, what? But yeah, I wish romance a... would take
2: a cue from horror and yeah. like, you know, make it unfamiliar, make it new, make it feel real. Like mm-hmm. get it in there. There's
1: something so charming about those. Like, honestly, I look at one of the most romantic films, I think is Sing Street um, and stuff like that, where I walk away and it's not, I mean, Moulin Rouge is like super romantic and there's Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor and it's shiny and glossy and everybody looks really pretty. But then I look at something like Sing Street and even though it's a musical and very hyper real, it feels more real um yeah. because i'm not as familiar with the actors it's got kind of an indie quality to it it's doing something different that isn't just shiny
2: yeah
0: but I like, I mean, what you said, it's a great place to kind of go out on. It's yeah. about connection. However you're going to, and, and we've all been craving connection during that, those couple years. Mm-hmm. And it's great to hear that bookstores. I mean, that makes me actually very excited to know that there's still hope in some of these things we grew up with. And the fact oh, that yeah. vinyl's vinyls, kicking ass and you know, everyone's getting, collecting Blu-rays. I'm like, okay, there's, on that level, there's something happening.
2: Um, oh, and can I, Jerry Springer, final thought for a second? Yeah, yes. That's please. actually oh, totally. really, that's really interesting because- so many of these movies we're talking about are about a lack of connection mm-hmm. you know i mean out outwaters were, and Skinnerberg and were basically with one person the entire yeah. time lost highways very much you know about this missing connection so is pulse um yeah. it, it sort of ties these liminally liminal ish movies together
0: no yeah. they're very lonely they're, they are often quite lonely films yeah
2: very
1: lonely. again Perfect post-pandemic films. These it just, is. they make sense. So.
0: I'm really glad you suggested this as a topic because it it forced me to look at something. I've been wanting to. I've been just thinking, what is me the too. connection between these? So when you suggested that, it's perfect.
1: And I'm really starting to hear that term thrown around, and it's one of those where, like, I have called films liminal before, but never has I have I considered it a subgenre because even. It's an interesting thing to even think of it as a subgenre because it's, whereas, you know, we have haunted house films, we have vampires, we have werewolves. Liminal, they're all about different topics, but what connects them together is the feeling they give you. How fucking trippy is that? That like they're connected by a tone or more of kind of um, an affect. Not necessarily that they all contain this particular type of monster. It's an affect. It's weird. But
2: I think you're right though, Rebecca, when you said that liminal may not be quite the right word, it's close, but I'm not sure it's 100% the right one.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, it seems like it's about to morph into something else. And now you're gonna leave me, and all I want to do is I wanna go through all of eighties and nineties porn and remove the people and see what it would feel like to watch those movies. Like <laughs> oh somehow digitally God. digitally remove it and just watch those movies as weird spaces. Oh, do, <laughs> do you right, want to hear a
1: really experiment? Over- That's a good, <laughs> a good
2: to do, do you wanna hear a really oversharing story here? Oh, of course. Okay. That's the best so, way to end. <laughs> so my dad used to love taking pictures. Not he wasn't good at it, but he liked doing it. And so whenever we went somewhere, we'd all have to pose and get a picture. And if we were staying in a hotel, we'd pose in the room and he'd, you know, set up the timer and do a picture. And when my parents got divorced, he would, he traveled a lot for work. So he'd set up the timer and take pictures of himself in hotel rooms and send them Mm. to us. And then he got a camera that didn't have a, he couldn't get the timer to work. So he just started sending us pictures of empty hotel rooms he was staying in. It I was could see like, where that was
0: going. That is yeah. thing. That
1: is so wild. It's wild. Oh my God. Feel
2: my absence,
0: child. <laughs>
1: yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> I am not in the space either or your space. Daddy isn't here. Yeah. Wow. Well, that yeah. probably the shining imagery that we see in the shining. So it all makes sense. <laughs> Uh, okay. Well, that was great.
1: I'm doubling back to the question okay. that I okay. had. Oh, that yeah. I blew the transition. All right. Here. All right. back you. Go. Um, okay. So what is your go-to place to find your paperbacks from hell? Where can I find squelch that it's not going to cost me 60 bucks? Because if I do not read squelch, I'm going to die inside but
0: Dude, i 60 fucking dollars
1: for squelch I don't i'm know talking
0: I as somebody who bought uh let's go play with the Adams" before it was in paperbacks <laughs> from hell and to do it i had to pay like 50 and then paperbacks from hell you guys you know, did a beautiful re-release so i
1: did it for all the slugs i got like surian like anything aquatic horror or insect horror i'm gonna do it but uh, do you have like a goat like are you is yeah there, like,
2: so so i'll sight? tell you yeah so i'll tell you <laughs> One of the weird, I, none of these books are worth the money people are charging online <laughs> right. at all, nope. um, except for Valencourt, which is like $18 or whatever they charge. Um, but what I discovered is online, you just can't find them anymore. Uh, I mean, you can, but you've got to kind of like really dig and root deep. And then they come with those stupid barcode stickers on the spines you can't get off. Are they are the they, worst the
1: goodwill stickers which yeah. i under i asked them i was in the goodwill one time buying a book and i was like why do you guys use these fucking stickers that won't come off and rip the cover and she's like because people will take them off and switch the prices around and mm-hmm. i was like oh okay fair enough it fucked up my spine so <sighs> yeah
2: yeah and even the good used bookstores you know it's like you're getting more <sighs> 90s stuff if it's been a really picked over one yeah. so what i really realized is when i go out on book tours I look for where in town is like the paperback swap shop. Like, where's the place where people go in with a shopping bag full of romance novels and come out, you know, just change them for store credit, come out with another shopping bag of romance novels. And so I find them from time to time. Uh, I just found a great one in in Cedar Falls. Um, you know, I... Um, Name. Uh, Oh, uh, I travel uh, the okay. country
1: every summer. Literally, yeah. I will do like where I will go town to oh, town. Well, and we'll be camping, no, but I'll be like bookshelf. Ooh. Email me,
2: email me a reminder and I'll send you my list because some of them are good. Some of them are places I've been. Some of them are just places people have recommended, but they're still out there and they're still hanging on, but you have to find them in person if you want to get decent prices anymore. And even then, this place in Cedar Falls was like, oh, we have a lot of horror paperbacks, but they've been so popular that we're saving them all in the back for our halloween sale i'm like mm. go
1: fuck no yourself. bring them out um well, <laughs> yeah but you... whose
0: fault is it that they became popular
2: i know i know
1: <laughs> if you the... find yourself in virginia let me know yeah, i'll yeah. hook you up with all the like good places to go but yeah as we've been traveling through i'm always i end up in the goodwills and sometimes i will find some really tight stuff there that i I'm never suddenly, have like... any
2: good luck and goodwills or like yeah
1: Usually, and and this is, I wish that they were still doing these. There was a stretch where Goodwills, at least in California, were doing dedicated Goodwill bookstores. It was basically like they had set up little bookstores that were acting as drop-off centers. And so they were opening up in like, closed down gas stations and it was just a bookstore front and then you could drop off all your shit there and those were where I was finding crazy amounts of stuff there there was like three of them there was one down in Temecula one in Upland and one in Northridge and there was a stretch where I was finding amazing stuff and then just um last year when they reopened after the pandemic they turned them all into Goodwill boutiques where it's now like Mm. that's where they send like you know the Chanel that ends up at Goodwill now goes to those boutiques and I'm like no I wanted the shitty shitty sci-fi novels from the 70s um, because if I do not own original Philip K. Dick novels, I will also die inside. So yeah. Well,
2: one other place is um friend of the library book sales are good places, mm-hmm. although some have a no mass market paperback policy. Um, and and like that really breaks my heart. But often those library book sales really I found some great stuff at some of them
1: yeah the one here in burbank they always have westerns at and i do love mm. my kind of sleazy westerns so yeah those are well those if anyone finds
0: a copy of teddy for me to read I've, I've struck out all these years since we've been doing shows there it always cost 400 dollars. Yep. i love I the know. pit i just want to read it i don't need to keep it um send it my way guys uh but hey thanks so much it's almost midnight You're in, so we better yes yes we Thank appreciate you. your for time me. all right thanks for having me you guys. and look Thank for the you. book where all books are sold
1: all books are sold The Colors of the Dark podcast is a Fangoria production. Producers and co hosts are Rebecca McKendry and Elric Kane. Executive producers are Tara Ainsley and Abby Gould. Associate producer is Jessica Soff of Amir. Sonic branding by Michael Rodriguez. And of course, our amazing sound engineer, Ernie Hurtado.